0: My name is Tolu Adeyemo, I'm a Senior Program Manager at Code for Africa as a nonprofit organization that pioneers Open Data, Digitalism and Civic Technology in Africa. I am an African woman from Nigeria, I am light-skinned, my hair is short and I'm wearing a white shirt. It is my pleasure to moderate today's discussion which is brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network and the National Civil Society Center. Thank you for joining us from all across the globe for today's dialogue titled "Making Data Accessible: The Role of Government and Civil Society Partnerships in Building Open and Comprehensible Data Sources." It is my pleasure to introduce you to Chika Shrestha, who is the head of programs. Inclusive governance at voluntary services overseas in Nepal. She has professional experiences centered on gender equality and social inclusion promotion, strengthening social accountability and good governance. Also, we have with us today Adenike Aloba. Adenike is Data Fights Program Director, and she has extensive knowledge and experience in media development people management, product management, as well as strategic communication. Also, joining as we welcome Zukiswa Kota, who is currently the South Africa Program F at the Public Service Accountability Monitor, which works in six African countries, um, including South Africa, Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Zambia, Mozambique, and Malawi. Last but not the least, uh, we have... Tio Chibiru. Tio is a governance expert with experience supporting and engaging government, multilateral institutions, private sector, civil society to develop and implement reforms. So yeah, so thank you all for joining the discussion. So to kick off this discussion, our speakers will share insight into their work, projects, and share their experiences um, leveraging partnerships with governments, and other civil society stakeholders. I would like to start with Shikha.
1: Namaste, I'm Shikha Straster, representing a VSO and LNOV consortium in Nepal. I'm a South Asian woman wearing red blouse and off white tari. It's more like an ethnic dress in South Asia. Today, I'll be sharing our experience of CSO consortium engaging very closely with the government in strengthening the citizen-generated data. If we talk about a leave-no-one-behind consortium, is it's the consortium of the INGOs and the NGOs like NGO Federation, Youth Advocacy, in Nepal, Invasion Committee. It envisions to strengthen the capacity of civil society organizations so that they can strengthen the voice and the agency of the marginalized community so that they can themselves make the duty bearers accountable. We use multi-stakeholder dialogue platforms and also generate the inclusive data that is for the evidence-based advocacy to strengthen our vision of leaving no one behind. We are working very closely with the state institutions like National Planning Commission, Central Bureau of Statistics, and National Human Rights Commission. In terms of the citizen-generated data, as the name indicates, is the data generated by the citizens. And this is the strong mechanism for empowering the citizens so that they can use this data as the evidence for advocating for claiming their rights and also making duty bearers accountable so that the voices of people are being used in the policy and the planning. And this process is supported by the non-state actors as well as the government. In terms of Nepal, we are using the community scorecard as a key process of citizen or the community-led monitoring process. mobilize the people and the communities together and also have the interface dialogue with the duty bearers. It provides a platform, especially the marginalized ones, to have the dialogue with the duty bearers and also share these findings at the different platforms and use that platform for providing the policy recommendation That's definitely the area for amplifying their voices that has been unheard earlier. If we see the most of the community scorecard data, we have found that the right holders were relatively high optimistic about the future than the duty bearers. It clearly indicates that people have much more higher expectations than the reality that has been seen by the duty bearers. On the other hand, if we see the present condition, especially the duty bearers claim that they are doing more, but that is not the case by the right holders. So there is also the mismatch between the expectation and the reality in the community and from the duty bearer side. So this is a very good tool for managing the expectation and also raising the voices so that duty bearers can hear the concerns of the people and also use those concerns for their planning and policy implementation processes. We have seen much more challenges, yes, especially of addressing the issues of underlying systemic discrimination and unequal power relations. Yes, we have brought people, especially the marginalized and the together with the platform of the government, but we have found that due to the hidden unequal power relationship these people are not able to raise their voices more strongly so we have to do much more efforts on there there are also not standard mechanism of generating citizen led data that creates much more skepticism and not accepting this data and much more concerns on the quality of the data we all know that citizen generated that has a huge meaning and it can create a lots of the impact on bringing the voices on the same platform promoting the equality but the investment in this area is very low. In terms of working together with the government, we have been working very closely with the government from the initial phase of sensitizing the government on the relevance of the citizen data, its importance on strengthening the government's accountability and the responsiveness and its effectiveness. We have reached to the stage of engaging the government in this process. However, we still need to make efforts owning this process by the government so that they would provide much more efforts on institutional. Analyzing this process of citizen generating data to use as a key tool for the planning and the policy procedures. We also need to work a lot on strengthening the data quality and, as I said earlier, address the barrier of systemic inequality. As we all know that there are so much of the inequality that has not been explored much. We need to strengthen those people whose voices has not been heard and empower them so that they can claim their rights much more strongly. And for this, we need to work together. Both the government and civil society need to work together and the citizen data can be a very strong tool for meeting our vision of leaving no one behind. Thank you very much. Namaste.
0: Thank you for the presentation, Shika. I mean, your person is very insightful. So I think, Adenike, you can go next.
1: Good
2: afternoon, everyone. My name is here, Aloba. I am a Black lady from Africa, Nigeria specifically. I'm speaking to you from Abuja. I am wearing red spectacles and a black top with African print. This afternoon, I'll be talking to you about the data landscape in Nigeria and the work that my organization has been doing around data accessibility and collaboration, both with the demand side of accountability and the supply side of accountability. Now, the data landscape in Nigeria, the best way to describe it is a terrain that is rough. There are a few bumps, some wide gullies, around data accessibility in Nigeria. One of the biggest challenges to data access is really that the fact that both the collection of data and the storage of data is still largely analog. A good example of that is that the registration of births and death, so when you get to the hospital when you have a baby, uh, they open a big register, oftentimes looking tattered, and they write those out. You get your birth certificate manually. They hand you a paper data around immunization is also manual i explain all this to let us know that largely data collection and data storage is still analog and clearly clearly just bridging that gap alone is problematic and makes the landscape really, really a rough terrain. On the other hand, analysis and interpretation of data, especially for national decision-making, is still also largely lacking. There's clearly a lot of work that still needs to be done in the basic understanding of the collection, storing, and the use of data across the country. If you want to understand the challenges we still have, The drama, permit me to describe it that way, that happened after the government announced the national identity number registration, which is supposed to be linked to your mobile numbers and will also be linked to other forms of identification, like international passports, like, um, like your bank details. The reaction that followed the government's announcement shows that there's still clearly a lot of learning, there's still quite a wide learning curve when it comes to communication and language around data, the language of description, the language of communicating around the collection of data, around the storage of data, and around the use of data. And this learning curve is not just for the people, but it's also for the supply side, the government. How do you communicate this to the people and how the people will receive it? So the fact that this is where we are as a country shows that there's still so much work to be done. There are conversations emerging now around the use of data data and data safety and data protection. However, those conversations are always, permit me to say, landlocked because of the very significant distrust between government and the people. When it comes to accountability data, which is where my organization really sits, the truth is getting data in Nigeria, really, especially accountability data, is like pulling teeth is literally like pulling teeth from government. Nigeria joined Open Government Partnership in 2016, but until 2018, it was difficult to get any kind of... Up until 2018, Nigeria getting data around budgets, getting data around contracting data, procurement data, was still largely problematic. Where this data existed, you had to struggle, you had to fight, and they existed in forms that could not be easily used by the demand side of, of accountability. In 2018, the government set up the, what we call the Nokopo portal. Now, the Nokopo portal is the Nigeria Open Contracting Portal. It was set up in 2018 for open, proactive publishing of contracting data. The World Bank's SEFTAS project, SEFTAS is the State Fiscal Transparency, Accountability, and Sustainability Project. The project incentivizes open government for state. 28 states out of the 36 and the Federal Capital Territory in Nigeria have an open data portal. However, openness has been gradual. Openness in Nigeria is literally like watching a baby try to walk. There's a lot of falling. There's a lot of stumbling. But when it comes to proactiveness, that's even less. (laughs) The uh, advancement when it comes to proactiveness is even less because most of the data, by the time they come out, they're at least two years old, which has implications for the demand for transparency and accountability. For instance, the Nigerian government just published their accounting statements, general accounting statement for 2018. So here we are in 2022. That's at least five years old and you have to then start working. But the truth is the deed is already done. If you layer that over very weak judicial system, very weak systems of accountability, the anti-corruption agencies, there's not a lot of proactiveness in acting. There's a lag between the transparency that open portals like Nokopo has given us and the accountability that should come from that. There's a lag. Now, for Data Fight, what we have been doing in the last two years is that we have committed to helping both the demand side of accountability, which we define as media, civil society, as well as actors who demand for accountability at the the state level. Those are the demand side of accountability. We have committed to empowering the demand side and the supply side of accountability, which is government. so, So our thought or our theory is that We help the demand side so that we can stimulate a demand for data so that this demand for data can result into a more proactive supply of data. And we help the supply side to proactively digitize their data. So, for instance, we have helped equity state to set up their own open data portal. And on the demand side, just recently we were in Edo, Jigawa, we were in Dojigawa and Benin, just helping demand side actors, media, civil society and change agents in those states, helping them to make a demand on this data and making a demand on the data involves understanding just what data is, how to interpret data, how to question data, how to analyze and then move forward to demanding accountability from this data. In reality, we found in one instance in a Boeing state, a project that had been abandoned for over a year. Workers, the government was forced to detail workers back to that project after a training for media and civil society in that state. So we helped them to interrogate that data and to demand accountability. And there was almost immediate response. So it kind of serves the theory that if you stimulate demand, then supply side would also kind of be forced to ask. This has been the nature of our work. In terms of collaboration, to be fair and to be frank, it's a little bit of here and there with Nigerian government. This is a government that is quite opposed, especially at the central level and even more so at the state level, questions being asked. I'm sure most of us have seen Nigeria's position on the Press Freedom Index, and that kind of gives you a sense of the state of press freedom and the state of freedom of expression in the country. Sorry, my light is back so you can see me again. And the state of freedom of expression in the country, it tells you, it gives you a sense of just the nature of that collaboration. So sometimes it's a dance forward and a dance back. What we think, and this is a nascent theory, really, what we think is that where media can put their foot down and demand certain questions and lay certain questions down and say, this must happen, the civil society can help to facilitate dialogue. And because data fight straddles both, we're both a civil society organization because we have a not-for-profit and we are media, it enables us to both, kind of investigate, to kind of both dangle the carrot and the stick in this case. So I'm going to stop talking now because I feel like I don't know if I've exceeded my five <laughs> minutes, but yeah. Thank you very much, Delu, and thank you, everyone.
0: Thank you so much, Adinike. Uh, okay, That's, that was really, really insightful, telling us about the work that you do at the fight and some of the challenges, you experience working with um, the Nigerian government. Okay, so um, Zuki's work, can you give us a brief background into your work and your experience in government collaboration.
3: Thank you so much. My name is Zugiswa. I wear spectacles. I'm an African woman with dreadlocks. And today I'm wearing a blue and white cotton shirt and talking to you from South Africa. Our organization, the Public Service Accountability Monitor, works in various contexts but one of the countries and the country that I primarily focus on in South Africa. And to give a very brief background, I'll focus on budget data, primarily because, and, and interesting to hear the similarities with Nigeria, the public data terrain is very varied, very diverse in South Africa. So I think it, it'll be helpful to focus on one particular area, which is fiscal transparency and, and, and budget data. So access to budget data and, and transparency is relatively high. In South Africa. In 2019, by example, the country scored 87 out of 100 in the open budget survey. Many on the call will have knowledge of what the open budget survey is, but just an indication that a transparency score of 61 and above out of 100 indicates that a country is likely to be publishing enough or sufficient material or budget documents to support informed public debate around the budget, around public finances. So in the OBS, the global average in that year, in 2019, was only 45 out of 100. And so the indication there is that essentially 75% of the countries that were surveyed, and I think in that year 115 or 117 countries were surveyed, 75% of them scored insufficient levels of budget, you know, transparency or fiscal transparency. And as I've mentioned, South Africa, or I didn't mention, but South Africa scored 87 out of 100. So that gives you an idea of the level of national budget data transparency. But having said that, it's important then to flag the difference in transparency and access to to data, but also the, the level of public participation in relation to the budget process. So participation challenges are one of the reasons for us that we've sought to better understand. The terrain of digital data, the terrain of, in particular, budget data. And so we've partnered with government and other civil society partners to kind of have a closer look at this and to influence the context. The public participation scores out of 100 for South Africa were 24 in that same year. So, year on year, the indication is that there is inadequate or, you know, I use the word dismal public participation or support for public participation in the budget process which is really, I guess, you know, in many respects, what actually matters. We have found that the open budget survey, as in, in combination with our historical work in the space, has really helped us not only to evaluate government's performance, but also to identify opportunities to support and to collaborate with government partners, you know, government entities on, on the key issues identified. Ourselves, as, a, as an individual organization, we've formulated or contributed to the formation of budget coalitions, one of which is called Imaliyatu, which means our money, loosely speaking. And the idea there was to use the experiences and use the findings of various surveys, including the OBS, to collaborate with government and other government's public entities to develop, for instance, the country's first open budget data portal that really is focused on provincial and national open budget data budget data, planning data, and really we're excited in the next phase, we're hoping to be looking at, closely looking at procurement data. The tool itself is called Bulega Mali, and it is kind of the result of direct co-production between civic actors who identify significant challenges within access to data. And so the challenges though, I have to say, I've, I've noted, there's the national level access, But the sub-national access issues, um, for example, provincial data and sectoral data, so health education and so on, there are fundamental challenges there, which we don't have a chance to go into today, but it's really important for us to note those. So why open data and fiscal transparency or fiscal policy in particular? But we found that one avenue that enables us to deepen spaces for democratic deliberation and public participation is the space of really deepening digital access and, and you know, open data, in particular budget data. So really, in, in, in summary, seeing my time, some of the lessons that we've learned that have encouraged us to continue on this work, you know, I think we've heard from our partners around the distinction between what the public feels and thinks about the future in relation to access to information and so on, and what duty bearers reflect on and what they say is happening and, and, and their focus, that disjuncture, I think, does speak to a need to more deeply create those spaces of participation and engagement and co-production. So that's one area. The other is that we are learning that in addition to the very real need to deepen transparency as one of the kind of anti-corruption interventions, there is also a benefit in opening up discussions and public debate about something as important as public finances. So it goes beyond the technical and really does speak to you know, the kind of developmental questions that, we, that many of us in the social accountability space are invested in. And I think really, I'll, I'll stop there, but one of the kind of real investments that we've made and a real attention or intentional investment in the space is around deepening co-production and, and trying to build participation or build collaboration with other partners beyond ourselves and beyond organized civil society organizations. And so for us, a conversation like this is particularly valuable and, and already really teasing out some really interesting um, inputs from the other countries. Thank you.
0: Thank you for the presentation, Zokiswa. I think now we can then hand over to Tio for his presentation.
4: Thank you, Tolu, and thank you for inviting me. So my my name is Theo Chiviru, and I'm a middle-aged African man, and today I'm wearing a white sweater with blue stripes, and I'm also wearing glasses, and I'm talking to you today from Pretoria, South Africa. I think thank you definitely for, for for this discussion, because this is a very important discussion that we at the Open Government Partnership have been trying to, you know, have been grappling with but also have been testing and seeing how partnerships between government and civil society can be strengthened and can be better. So the, Open, the OGP was founded 10 years ago, and it was founded by, at that time, eight governments and nine civil society organizations. And since then, the partnership has grown. Today, we speak of 78 national governments, 76 local governments, and thousands of civil society that are part of the the OGP partnership. And at the time, at the launch of OGP in 2011, and still is, the idea around OGP was really to to bring together government reformers and civil society reformers to work together to open up government and government processes through information and data to citizens to ensure that there is improved delivery of public services Deter corruption and improve the democratic lives of citizens. And the cornerstone and the may of the model of the open government model is the collaboration between government and civil society, building partnerships, you know, what we're talking about today, those partnerships between government and civil society, and in ensuring that those partnerships do you know, are able to open up, you know, to open up government through creating access of data to citizens to be able to create spaces where citizens are able to engage with government and be able to shape policies and reforms around the issues that matter to them as citizens, and also to create spaces where civil society and governments and citizens are able to deliberate on on challenges that they are facing, maybe around corruption, around public service delivery, or around the various issues that, that, that matter to citizens. But most importantly, to make sure that there is a space where civil society, governments and citizens are able to co-create reforms to address the key challenges that, you know, that societies and citizens are facing. So in the 10 years that OGP has been existent, we have learned a couple of things. But the one big issue that we've learned as the OGP is that the model works. Partnerships between government and civil society are possible. These partnerships that are meant to open up data and information and make data more accessible to citizens are actually possible and actually sustainable. I'll take you to just two examples that I can give you. I'll take you to Uruguay, where an organization in 2015 called Uruguay, Data Uruguay, joined together forces with the Minister of Health to develop an online platform that is called Atu Servicio. And the main objective for that platform was to provide access, you know, easy, readable information to citizens around healthcare providers so that citizens are able to choose the best healthcare service provider that works for them and their families. What this Atu Servicio did for citizens is that it empowers citizens to be able to choose and to know that for my family, this is the perfect healthcare provider that can help. And this empowers citizens to take healthcare into their own hands. Another example that I can share is I'll take you to Liberia. And some of you might already know that land was a big issue in Liberia that has caused a number of civil wars in Liberia. And with Liberia joining the OGP, an organization in Monrovia called the Sustainable Development Institution joined forces with the Minister of Energy and Mines and Internal Affairs to produce an online platform to disclose and to share information around land ownership through digitalized maps, what this information did is that it empowers citizens and the communities to push back on mining companies that were wanting to take their land. It also helped to, you know, to settle the longstanding land dispute, issues that local communities were having with mining companies. These two examples and, and many others, and I think Zuki spoke about Volekamali, these examples and many others do prove that you know, partnership between government and citizens to disclose information and to share information with citizens do actually work. But however, there is an ingredient that is very important. There are certain factors that can actually make this model work and how this, this model has actually worked for the open government partnership. And I would like to share with you four ingredients that I can talk about. The first one is in to ensure that there is genuine dialogue between government and civil society, that a space is created where genuine dialogue actually happens between government and civil society, because only then is trust built for that, you know, for that collaboration to actually produce results and be transformative and improve a citizen's life. The second issue is to focus on the citizen. When you focus on the citizen, the first thing it does is that it creates a demand for the data. Because civil society alone cannot ask for accountability from citizens, but only the citizens are able to push for, for accountability together with civil society. So focusing on the citizen also empowers to shift the power dynamics between the citizens and those in power. And only then can we get you know, developmental issues be, be, be transformative, but also create demand for, for the use of that data. because what we're seeing i think in the last year we've been having some very interesting conversations with some think tanks in the region around the use of data and what we're hearing more and more is that a lot of the data platforms are failing because they've not created the demand side because starting with, with 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 an innovative with data but without the citizen so it's very important that whatever partnerships we build with government around this need to focus on the citizen the third is a very important, which is very connected to the, to the second one, is we need to start with the problem. When you start with the problem, you start with the citizens. It ensures that you know, the problem is addressing a local issue that citizens that care about. And also governments begin to listen when civil society comes with a solution to a challenge that governments are facing in terms of addressing the needs of the citizen. And the fourth and very important one is that what we're hearing more and more from governments is that they want to build partnerships to civil society, where civil society brings innovations, new ways of doing things. And I think this is something that, you know, these four points that I've raised, I think, are very important for the sustainability and success of partnerships between government and civil society around, you know, making data more accessible. So in closing, I realize that I'm in time, but I have to say that the data revolution theory of change that we all had as data advocates 10 years ago, which focused on the thinking that, you know, the mere disclosure and sharing of information, you know, to citizens will actually improve developmental indicators, hold, you know, ensure that governments are held more accountable, is now outdated. And I think we all agree that more and more we have realized that the mere disclosure of data is not what will transform people's lives or change or improve things. And I think as we build these partnerships with government, there are a couple of things that we need to be very careful about. Number one, we need to carefully think about the quality of the data. And I think someone spoke about it. The quality of the data is very important. But most importantly, who might use the data and in what way will these people use the data? And far most important, to what end? And only then will actually. Ensure that these partnerships actually transform people's lives. Thank you.
0: Thank you for sharing the measures that you've taken to ensure successful collaboration with governments within your country. Quickly, I would want us to come back to some of the challenges or issues that were highlighted during the presentation. So let's discuss some point that stood out was around um, data governance, transparency. So, technology has made data cheaper and easier to conduct, uh, and it's easy to conduct and public research. While competition among journals have driven some researchers to prioritize visibility over integrity. So, as a civic organization, I think it's critical to ensure that data shared to the public is credible. So, I would like to ask are, are there systems that you put in place, maybe with your organization? to ensure that research or data collection systems are conducted and they meet scientific merits, so that to ensure that the study is of sound um, design and methodology. I'm going to open the floor to any of the speakers to share some insight on this.
4: Yes, it's always a very tricky one because I think, and I did speak about the quality of the data is really important. And we, I think as the, o, as the OGP, we actually work with partners that ensure that Before data is is put out there, there is the verification of the data. But I think I'll go back to what I said. I think especially, you know, when we talk about this partnership between government and civil society, one key area, especially when you look at, for example, governance data around fiscal data, around contracting data or beneficial ownership data, the only way that we can make sure that this data is credible and is in the quality of the data is when we open it up to the citizen because citizens are the ones that experience and know how they're being affected by, by some of the reforms that governments are putting in place. So firstly, we need to put in place systems as organizations to make sure that whatever data we put out there, it is, it is good, it is the right data, and the quality of the data is, is quite high. And I think we we no longer have the luxury, you know, we no longer have the luxury of putting out data that is not correct, inaccurate in data. We no longer have the luxury to put out data that is not That is not of high quality. I think it's very important as we, I think, from the civil society side to take it upon ourselves to make sure that whatever data we put out there, it is quality data, but also making sure that whatever steps we take, citizens are part of the solution. Because one of the challenges that we face is that because citizens are not part of the solution, much of the data is not verified. Civil society are the only ones that can verify that data. So it's very important that, that we do that. In the OGP, something that we always continuously encourage both governments and civil society to pay attention to.
0: That's a really good point. That's a really good point. I agree. We need to ensure that um, our data are more citizen focused. Okay, cool. I don't know, Adenike or zukiswa do you have any opinion on that? Is there anything you want to share?
3: I mean, I think my perspective has always been a bit of a maverick one, and as far as the publication of data, and, and it is, I guess, the perspective of someone who's never been i've never worked inside government but my maverick perspective has always been publish it put disclaimers on it and come back to it if you need to but essentially that a big part of access to information is about managing risk in a sense but i i I do think that maybe a little bit tangential to your question but one of the very interesting ongoing dialogues we've had for instance with the national treasury who we've worked with and, and who really have been championing fiscal transparency over many years in South Africa. One of the really interesting ongoing dialogues has been about changing the paradigm about what should be and can be publicly profiled and published information. When is it ready? When is it not? And when is it premature to to share? And in fact, a big part of that has been engaging around Sometimes it is that you publish things before they are effectively ready in order to be able to influence public dialogue and find ways, creative ways to kind of ensure that you still protect the credibility and integrity of, of the institution, but without essentially being opaque or, or, or kind of um, being closed off in decision-making. So that's been fascinating for me as an as an outsider. And I, I would say that over a certain period of time, there has been some shifts in certainly an individual administrative staff's perspectives on it. And that's been fascinating to see, but that's very much at the individual level, I have to say. Okay, so just a follow-up question,
0: Tsukiswa. Uh, so you have mentioned some of the um, mentions that work for you, for your organization working in South Africa. Just curious, if you can make a comment on data accessibility across some of the other countries where you work. So you, your organization work in Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Mozambique, Malawi, do you have the same measure across those countries.
3: Yeah, I mean the very quick and almost glib answer to your question is that all, across our colleagues who work in those contexts, I think my job is easiest in as far as access to information is, but also in as far as the supportive legislation. So I complain all the time and, and every now and then I get a reality check from my colleagues who not only don't always have the requisite or the supportive legislative reform, but also are in the process of informing that. There are disjunctures in that. And then I think there's also maybe very much I'd love to hear Adanike's perspective. I think we don't work in Nigeria, but we've got some partners there. And I and I would say that the challenges are also exactly about what you're speaking about in relation to like the various quality and the various levels of, of transparency and, and, and publication. I do think, though, having said that, there are many areas, and one of them is fiscal transparency, which I would say Nigeria is ahead. For example, in the context of procurement, I think we have a lot to learn in our context from, from Nigeria in, in kind of open contracting and open procurement reform. I don't know that that's that necessarily as strongly supported in the legislative context, but, but maybe I UK can really go in depth on that.
2: Indeed, when it comes to procurement and contracting data, there is significant openness, like I said in my presentation, there's significant openness. The problem is one, the proactiveness of that transparency, because where the data is coming two years after the work had been done, three years post the work, it makes accountability a little harder. Now, the challenge with us is where there is that demand for accountability, and I did note that Theo was talking about, you know, engaging the citizens. And I think that, in terms of engagement of citizens, the media is critical. They have the platform to reach the most people. For instance, so Datafi published an investigation into the procurement process of Oyo your state or your state is one of the uh, subnational level government in Nigeria, where there had been contract inflation and some level of beneficial ownership drama at work in that oftentimes where you find Nigerian, and now I'm speaking as a Nigerian who is the people who are supposed to be engaged in this process. So the story has been published. Some people have done the work of actually taking contracting data and using it, but nothing has happened no arrest, not even conversation of course the media conversations are happening people are talking about it but that fatigue i think i want to hear theo's thoughts on nigeria's uh place in the ogp because i think that for us there's such a gap between accountability and the transparency that we're now seeing there's still quite a significant gap and so oftentimes the media does the work the people are enraged but because the people can't arrest the people can't question there are institutions that are supposed to do that where those institutions don't do their work i mean i I would say if anything in terms of just thinking around the subject i think the value chain of the demand for accountability needs to be expanded to include those who are supposed to act to include anti-corruption agencies to include the judiciary, to say, this is what is supposed to happen. But for me, I've been saying this in every room I've been in, in recent times. And it's that the question I've been asking, especially because of the peculiarity of Nigeria, it's that what happens, what what will impact look like for us if status quo remains the same? Of course, the goal of most of our work is that status quo does not remain the same, is that there is Some change on the level of government, where there is actual accountability. But when status quo remains the same, what would the impact look like? And for me, that drives me right back to citizen engagement, where the citizens may not be able to arrest anyone, they may not be able to prosecute anyone, but they do have a power that comes around once in four years, and that's their voting power. So I think that if the data that is available is used well enough, is told in a way that people can identify with and there's conversation around it, I will think that impact could then be empowering the citizens to use the power they do have, to say, oh, you messed up in this way and we're not going to return you back to that office. I think I'll just stop that. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. so I think what you're saying in essence is holding our government uh, more accountable. Absolutely. There's another question here from Oliver Rack. And it said, how do you cope with bilingual vocabulary, French or English within AU? And there's a follow-up question that says, is there a core vocabulary for metadata?
2: I think that's a very interesting question. Very interesting question. And at the risk of sounding like there's a handle on something that there's no handle on, the truth is because, in the case of Nigeria, because there's still so much struggle crossing over to the digital element, just taking ourselves from analog to digital. The conversation on language, especially of metadata, is not happening at any level that you can call it a constructive conversation. So the conversation happens in the technical room. So when I'm in a room with the guys who are building whatever tech, is going to be used for open data, when I'm in the room with the guys who are going to be managing that tool, that conversation does come up. What do we do about metadata? But in rooms like, permit me to say like this, where the conversation around data accessibility is happening, there is very little attention paid to the language of the metadata, which actually has very significant impact on accessibility. So I think that's the response I can give to that. Perhaps someone else can speak to bilingual challenges with the AU.
4: I think from my end on the French and English, and I think, you know, we as the OGP being an organization, for example, in Africa, where 16 members OGP, in OGP are both in, you know, English and French, that idea, you know, whatever discussions and data that is being published around OGP, We are very sensitive around the French and English vocabulary, and we have to make sure that I think it speaks to the issue of us as data scientists to also be whatever we do to have that, you know, the idea about the thought around language to be at the back of our mind. The challenge that we have is that when we develop data systems and tools, language is the last thing we think about, because it is at the time of interfacing with the citizen that we begin to think about, oh, okay, we need to think about data. We need to think about language. But if we, at the beginning of projects, at the beginning of processes, we already begin to think about language. Because if we're talking about localizing information, we're talking about ensuring that the local communities are engaging with the data, language has to be at the beginning. So just to say that we at the OGP, we make sure that when we engage not only with the African Union, with the African Development Bank, with institutions like UNECA, language is very important to us. And we make sure that whatever... Space we create, that is both English and French.
0: Thank you for your inputs. Okay, so um, I have another question from it says um, the reality is that citizens require basic data literacy and they require access to connectivity or infrastructure to even get their hands on data. So I'm going to direct this question to Shika because your organization works with volunteers, right? How have you been able to tackle access and access to education to ensure that there is? active citizenry be realized to bridge the data divide?
1: Thank you very much for the questions. I think there was also the question on the chat about how we ensure that it's not only the citizen, even the non-citizens should also have access to the data and the figure. So in that case, what is required is generally if we are about to break the skepticism of credibility of the data, mostly in terms of the South Asia, we use the tool that has even been accepted by the government so there are different social accountability tools like in our case we are extensively using tools like social audit committee scorecard citizen's report card that has also been accepted by the government and also the government also have published the guidelines so that procedures and also for the budget advocacy and ensuring the public participation on the budget So using the tool that has been accepted or accredited by the government has always been helpful for breaking the kind of the challenges of the credibility of the data. Another one, as you said, as we work very closely with the volunteers, there are lots of the community volunteers and we also use the model of the blended volunteer where the international volunteer work together with the national volunteer, and national volunteers work very closely with the community volunteers. There are lots of the tools that has been accepted by the international community that has been passed by the national volunteer and the national volunteers to the community volunteers who work very closely with the community. And if we are talking about the public participation, especially the one, as Santos also raised, about the point of the intersectionality, if we're about to ensure the real participation, then we also need to sensitize the community, especially the people who do not care about those data and the access. So in that case, community volunteer engagement has going to the door-to-door, going to the platforms where communities, both being the citizens and non-citizens, going there has always been helpful. And as I also said in my presentation, we need to break the barriers of the unequal power relationship. We also need to empower these people or strengthen voices of these people because they do not want to talk. They do not know how to talk. So it's also the role that has been played very strongly by our community volunteer, by inspiring them, by helping them, and also by consolidating their voices as the network and the initiatives. There are lots of the youth network that our youth volunteers has raised. So strengthening, consolidating, and amplifying their voices as a network through the engagement of our blended volunteering model has been very much helpful so that those voices are heard much more systematically. Hope I answered your question, Tulu.
0: Thank you very much. So I would like to use the opportunity to invite the participants to join the next dialogue, which is titled um, Improving the Access of People with Disabilities to the Internet. This will take place on Thursday, June 2nd at uh, 4 p.m. Uh, South African time. And it will be hosted by Bab Everson. Just to give a quick summary of our discussion, we have uh, talked about some of the challenges that civil society organizations face when collaborating with, uh, with um, government. And uh, we've been able to get some insights into what has worked for some organizations. I think what Ademiki highlighted initially was like, that there, there was a lot of learning curve that needs to be done by government especially in Nigeria, regarding language or data accountability data is, is still a difficult terrain in most developing countries, right? So I believe that if we stimulate demand side, supply side to provide industry data, so we, are, we all need to work together to facilitate dialogue and change in our society. So I think um, all the speakers were able to echo this and say that we need to encourage um, dialogue with government. We need to involve them. We need to involve the citizens. I just want to say a, a very big thank you to all our speakers. Thank you for your time. Thank you for such a great um, discussion. Thank you for spending your afternoon and with us.